Hello and welcome to another episode of Have You Got That Right, the podcast of the Caston Centre for Human Rights Law at Monash University. I'm your host, Maria Smith, Manager of the Centre. And I'm Tanya Penovich, Deputy Director of the Centre. And I'm Eleanor Jenkin, the Policy Manager at the Centre. Uh, on the weekend, it was Human Rights Day, and it got, got us to thinking about human rights, of course, and the world's principal organ for human rights, which is the United Nations. And it's one of these topics that can inspire a lot of intense debate, but often without people really understanding what the UN is. So we thought we'd strip it back today and take a look at what the UN is and what it isn't. And then we'll move on to human rights news, and we'll conclude with our human rights hero or villain of the week. So to get started, what is the UN? Well, today we want to take you through the sprawling structure that is the UN, um, especially as it relates to human rights. We want to simplify the UN for you, so we're not going to take you down every rabbit hole, but rather focus on the main organs of the UN. And we intend this to be the first podcast in the UN, but uh, not the last. We're already looking at um, a separate podcast for early next year on some of the controversies and criticisms of, of, of the UN and its work. So we're going to open by having a little chat about how the UN got started and looking at the different roles that it plays, the political role, the program, programmatic role, and then finish off with a discussion of, of how the UN looks after human rights in particular. So to get started, Tanya, I want to bring you in. Tell us a little bit about you know, when the UN got started and why. Okay, so the UN started officially on the 24th of October 1945. That's when its constitutional document, the UN Charter, took effect. The document had been drafted some months earlier at the San Francisco Conference by essentially the Allies in the Second World War, so the countries which had declared war on Germany and Japan. So, so. The United Nations commenced in October 1945 with the commencement of the UN Charter, and the, the Charter is the constitutional document of the United Nations. The, the document links tolerance, peace and security as being essential to the achievement of human rights. It, it, it states that we, the people of the United Nations, determined to save succeeding generations from the scourge of war, which twice in our lifetime has brought untold sorrow to mankind, and among other things, to refer, reaffirm faith in fundamental human rights, in the dignity and worth of the human person, and in the equal rights of men and women, and of nations large and small. So there, there was very much a recognition of the, the failure of the predecessor body, the intergovernmental organisation known as the League of Nations, which was established uh, by the Treaty of Versailles in 1919 after the First World War. Yeah, so the, uh, there's a... Uh, great. So there's there's a conversation that could be had there about, you know, probably for another day, about the idealism of uh, of the, 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 the people setting up the UN versus the pragmatism of it. And, yes. you know, so in that opening statement, you've got the affirmation of the equal rights of all people and all nations. But then, of course, you've got the winners of World War II setting up the Security Council, which is the all-powerful body, and they're the all-powerful members on it. Yes. So... I want to move from the, the history of the UN into what, exa what exactly it does. And the first thing is to look at the, the principal organs. So the, the Charter set up these principal organs, which are the Security Council, the General Assembly, a, a court the, called the International Court of Justice, plus a few other bodies, the Economic, Social and, um, Economic and Social Council, 
uh, and uh, the Secretariat as well. Um, I want to start by talking about the Security Council. It is, as I say, really the most important body of the UN. So, Tanya, can you tell us a bit about how it works? Sure. Well, the Security Council has 15 member states, and uh, some of you may recall that Australia was a member between 2013 and 2014. But five of those members are permanent, and they are China, the United Kingdom, France, Russia, and the United States. And in fact, I understand that that the um, permanent membership uh, was a condition of the United States uh, becoming a member of the United Nations and US membership was seen as essential to the functioning of this organisation because the US was not a member of the League of Nations and this was seen as one of the reasons why it failed. Uh, also essential to the US uh, membership of the United Nations was the veto power held by the five permanent members who can block decisions and resolutions. Uh, so the, the primary function of the Security Council is to maintain international peace and security to facilitate peaceful resolution of international disputes and to, to also take preventative or enforcement action to maintain peace and security. Mm. Um, so, what are, Eleanor, what are some of the sort of things that the Security Council can use those powers to do, just some sort of real world examples? Right, so the Security Council is probably best known for. Um, the, for authorising military actions, for imposing sanctions, and also for launching peacekeeping operations. Um, and its resolutions are binding on member states, unlike the other, uh, sorry, unlike resolutions passed by other UN bodies. So it does tend to have a bit more teeth behind it. Um, so Apart from the Security Council, one of the big other bodies, of course, is the General Assembly. Eleanor, can you tell us a bit about how that works? So the General Assembly is the main deliberative representative organ of the UN. Unlike the Security Council, every member state of the UN sits on the General Assembly um, and has an equal vote and an equal voice in that institution. Um, they... The General Assembly will pass resolutions um, which can have important normative value, um, but they're not binding in the same way that Security Council resolutions are. Yep, and I want to just pull you up on normative value. So okay. <laughs> <laughs> explain normative value. Well, actually, I think maybe Tanya would like to step in on this one. Okay, um, sure, I can say something about normative value, but I, I'll first comment on... on uh, the resolution power of the, the General Assembly. So the General Assembly is often um, dismissed as some kind of a, a rabble that, that really does nothing, achieves nothing. But the resolutions that the General Assembly makes can, can relate to any matter within the scope of the UN Charter. And there are some very important human rights initiatives that, that are attributable directly to the General Assembly, but not often understood as having anything to do with it. So the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which is the foundational international human rights document, was proclaimed by the General Assembly on Human Rights Day, the 10th of December, 
December in 1948. So it's a declaration of the General Assembly. Um, so in terms of normative value, uh, while unlike the Security Council, the General Assembly does not issue legally binding declarations, it, they do represent international consensus and that is important in the formation of customary international law so it is often said that the Universal Declaration of Human Rights in whole or in part constitutes customary international law because it, it is a declaration of consensus. Yeah so, so to come in here uh, the, the international law is developed in a few ways and one is we, uh, we have binding treaties that countries sign up to and then there's this idea of customary law that's developed from the practices and one place we would look to try and work out what international law is, uh, is is the declarations that come out of the UN General Assembly. Mm, Because it's made up of what states do, state practice and, and what states consider themselves to be bound to do. Yeah. Uh, what are the other, or the other organ in particular that I wanted to mention briefly is the International Court of Justice. Can you tell us a bit about how that works? So the International Court of Justice uh, is a court which adjudicates disputes between member states. And it's really important to distinguish that from the ICC, um, which the deals... International. Sorry, the International Criminal Court, yeah. which deals with the culpability of individuals. Um, so this is this is not the same. Mm. Um, it's looking at disputes um, relating and, and adjudicating international legal disputes between member states. Yep. So, so you know, disputes over maritime boundaries, right. for example... Uh, or the whaling case. Yeah, the um, whaling case. Tell us about recently, that, Tanya. Well, that, that was a case um, concerning whaling in the Antarctic between Australia and Japan. And um, one of the uh, ad hoc judges on the court at the time was Hilary Charlesworth, a great friend of the, the Caston Centre, who in fact gave our annual lecture a few weeks ago. Yes, yeah, that's right. So that was a well-reported case in Australia, and so it helps you to understand. It's, yeah, it's, it's the ultimate body for states to come together and uh, decide on disputes of international law based on international law. Um, Okay, so all of these, or not the ICJ as much, but the the General Assembly and the Security Council are collections of member states, and so in that regard they're political entities where states come together and represent their own best interests. Uh, So I want to talk about a little bit about geopolitical reality in the UN because it's it's helpful to understand the UN really doesn't have an official position on political things its position is driven by the interests and and uh and beliefs of its member states so uh Eleanor do you want to tell us a give, give, give us a little bit of information about how states conduct themselves on uh, you know through the UN right so um as you as you alluded to Marius, the UN and and certainly the Security Council and the GA are only as effective as their member states Um, and they're really, you you know, creatures of their member states. Um, And so geopolitical realities uh, really influence what comes out of them. And you can see this perhaps most clearly when you look at the Security Council and the history of the Security Council. being bound as it is 
by having five permanent members that have veto power. Uh, During the Cold War, the Security Council was profoundly ineffective. It was completely hamstrung. Um, The only topic it was able to intervene on, um, which was seen as a hot topic at the time, was was Korea, where it did authorise the military intervention um, of South Korea. However, that was because the USSR representative was out of the room at the time. Um, beyond that, the only peacekeeping operations it was it. <laughs> it was able to initiate during that period were in relation to um, Western New Guinea and, and Cyprus, right. which were seen as really on the margins of what was politically important at the time. Yeah. Now, you then compare that level of activity to what we saw in the 90s, post-Cold War, when the number of resolutions passed and the number of interventions authorised just exploded. Um, And that was because suddenly you had much more cooperation from the member states sitting on the Security Council and you didn't have quite the same intervention by Mm. the Permanent Five. Having said that, we routinely do still see vetoes. And as Tanya mentioned earlier, that Probably the the best recent example of that is the eight vetoes by the USS. Sorry, by the Russians. <laughs> I'm stuck in the Cold War um, by Russia on Syria-related resolutions. Mm. Uh, beyond that, uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of issues that come up that are still subjects to you know beyond just Syria to uh, to. Um, Vetoes, which means that the council can't act. Uh, one is, you know, th- there are increasing numbers of sanctions on Russia, but they don't come out of the UN because, naturally, as a member of the Permanent Five, Russia would veto them. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting, you know, to see the flowering of something called the Magnitsky Act, which has been adopted by five or six countries around the world, and specifically targets Putin and his cronies, and they hate it. And it was p- purported to be part of the reason that they were interested in trying to influence the outcome of the. Uh, Uh, of the 2016 election. I think on this issue of geopolitical um, realities and manoeuvring, it's also important to recognise that beyond the veto power and certainly beyond the Security Council, that um, a a massive influencing factor in the way that a lot of the UN works is geopolitical groupings. Um, They're often Mm. known as regional groupings, but that's not strictly true. For example, Australia is not part of the Asian grouping, it's part of the Western Europe and others group. And those groupings are used um, to in the appointment of different countries to different bodies, um, in appointing individuals to different roles. Mm. The idea is that you want to have a body which has relatively equal or equitable representation. Um, and so that that becomes a really important part of the functioning of the UN. Along with voting blocs, states rarely just vote according to what they want on their own. Uh, They will consult their allies, the the countries that they have um, similar alignment to for whatever reason on an issue, and they'll often vote together or there'll be deals done over votes. So um, there's a lot of horse trading and, and there's a lot of nuance to how and why states act the way they do in the UN. Mm, Yeah. And one really political example from recent times was that uh, the Human Rights Council uh, appointed one of its many 
mandate holders as their own, an independent expert on sexual orientation and gender identity. And uh, there was a group of countries that tried to use their power as a block, uh, both in, in on the council and uh, through the General Assembly, to block the uptake of his appointment because of their stance on LGBTI issues. Yes. Yeah, so there's lots of you know ways. There's a lot of horse trading that goes on for anyone who's ever been near the political organs of the UN. Um, so that's one aspect of the UN. An- another major aspect is that the UN does actually do specific things through a whole bunch of different agencies. And if, if you're listening to this podcast, you've probably heard of some of the major ones like the um, United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, the UN Development Program, the World Health Organization. So uh, this is a really important function that differs hugely from the political function. Eleanor, do you want to just take us through a bit of, uh, you know, a bit more information on that? Sure. Look, as you've mentioned, there are, there's an absolute host of agencies, UN agencies, that do all sorts of different work um, around the, the world. And I think it's important just to mention it because often when we think about the UN, and certainly when there are criticisms pegged at the UN, they're often in relation to the, the political function. Not always, but often. Um, and that's just one obviously very important part of what the UN does. Um, so, for example, you mentioned the UN Development Program. That's a, a huge program that's devoted to eradicating poverty um, a, around the world. So no easy task, obviously. Mm. Um, and in doing that, it, it looks at things like building resilience to climate change and, and to natural disaster. Mm. It looks at gender equality and governance issues. It looks at, you know, a range of these things. Um, and it works with different government agencies. It partners with various institutions like civil society, the private sector, um, to, to try and achieve the UN's development agenda. Um, and so what that looks like in practice is that you'll have different country offices partnering with with various parts of government and, and others, um, giving them technical assistance, um, administering funds, uh, taking on a coordinating role. So it's not always sexy stuff, but it's mm. really important. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so th- another organisation that does uh, a, a lot of work on the ground is the UN High Commissioner for Refugees. Exactly, yeah. And that's one that I, I think most people will have heard of um, at some point. I think it's just worth flagging, you know, the, the scope of work that an agency like that does. Um, you know, providing shelter, protection services, resettlement programs, repatriation programs, um, coordination of, of the interagency response often acting through um, implementing partners, which will be, you know, NGOs and and others on the ground. Um, And obviously the issue of of displacement is a huge one um, at the moment. You have, by the agency's figures, 65 million people who are currently displaced, 22.5 million of those refugees. So when we think about that issue and and what it means for there to be movements of people across borders, having an agency which can um, provide that sort of, you know, coordination role um, is really important. Yeah, I mean, UNHCR has... Uh, you know, it, it can be a bureaucratic organisation at times, but it has done an enormous amount to coordinate the provision of relief to people who, in other circumstances, you know, might die, and or if they don't die, they definitely make their lives better. They 
operate to provide services. Often when people have fl- fled across a, a border, sometimes for years or decades, they uh, but they also provide uh, services in repatriating people when peace comes and, and very importantly for a country like Australia, uh, resettling refugees in third countries like ours. And, and we often, in this country, we spend a lot of time talking about the onshore arrivals, people who arrive by boat, less time talking about people who arrive by plane, but they're all part of the same cohort, although they're treated differently. Mm-hmm. But... Uh, a lot of what uh, Australia has done with refugees is actually taking refugees from other these other countries, and and by and large, the the whole process is a is an interaction, broadly speaking, between the Australian government and UNHCR. Not in every country, there are com- some countries that take the lead over UNHCR, but in particularly, you know, where for example refugees have fled from one insecure country such as Sudan to another country you know without a lot of resources like Kenya it's UNHCR who'll be running the camps and running the resettlement process out of the camps. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's a sort of broad overview of just a couple of agencies and as I say there are other really important ones like the World Health Organization uh, another agency we won't to talk about a lot today but that has had an increasing role since the end of the world uh, end of the uh, Cold War is since the end of the world. Not yet, it hasn't <laughs> happened yet. I'm checking my phone though. Um, since the end of the Cold War is the Department of Peacekeeping Operations. Yeah. The UN now does a lot of peacekeeping in, in, in different parts of the world, mm-hmm. often really long-term operations. Uh, so that's kind of an overview of the, the, those two different functions. Now I want to move to the UN's human rights infrastructure. You know, human rights is a huge part of what the UN does. So we want to just kind of pick apart the different ways that it works. And, and there's, there is, again, sort of a, a political function that the UN plays on human rights or facilitates. And then it's more programmatic function where, you know, using human rights experts uh, to drive the agenda forward. So, Eleanor, could you start by telling us a little bit about that main political body, which is the Human Rights Council and how it works? Right. So, the, um, as you mentioned, the, the Human Rights Council is, is really the, the peak um, sort of political body when it comes to human rights. It has... 47 seats and they're filled by member states which are elected for three-year terms um, so Australia will be taking up its seat uh, in March Gen- January January, is it? January. Mm. there you go um, first time it'll have been on the council yes. yeah, yeah. Um, and so the the council interestingly enough is a is a fairly new body it um, was only established in 2006 and it was established to replace um, what had been the Commission on Human Rights. And that was a, a body that had been really, really heavily criticised and had really lost its legitimacy. Um, yeah, the, uh, I heard a joke once that, that the unofficial name of the Commission was the widely discredited Commission on Human Rights. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, and look, the, the view at the moment is that the Council thus far um, has managed to escape some of the things that really brought the Commission down but obviously only being well just over 10 years old it's still still relatively new um and so as i mentioned that that commission um is filled by sort of a rotating roster of of states um and it passes it has a few different functions um 
it, it obviously passes resolutions on, on various situations and issues. It has um, a fairly unique process called the U- Universal Periodic Review, which is really a more systematic assessment of the human rights situation in each um, in each of the UN member states. Yeah, and this is this is a function that wasn't part of the commission, and I think is a function that people think is a you know a real a real improvement over the over the former commission. Yeah, but I, I think you're right. It, it's been seen as a, a big improvement. Um, the council does also have its own complaint procedure for individuals and organisations to to bring complaints. Yeah. And I might just I might just say at this point that just in the last few days the uh, Attorney General's Department uh, has uh, launched its Universal Periodic Review Monitoring website, which can be found at www.ag.gov.au, and it's a very useful resource if you want to monitor Australia's performance. Um, human rights performance and how it is faring under its um, its UPR uh, recommendations. Yes, Australia had its um, its second UPR in 2015. Uh, it's a sort of about a five year, is it five and a half year cycle, somewhere around there. So I, I don't know when the next one, whether the next one has been scheduled, but it should be either late 2020 or in 2021. So, and Australia made a lot of commitments. So what happens at the UPR is that every country can speak, not just the members who are actually elected to the council, but any country can uh, have its say about your, your country's human rights record when it's up for review. And there were hundreds of recommendations coming out of it, a lot of them focusing on refugees, which the government mostly uh, didn't accept, yes. but, it, but it has this right. So it did accept a lot of other recommendations on Indigenous issues, on disability, on uh, women's rights. And so, as you say, Tanya, now they've just finally put this website up, which allows us all... It gives much more transparency. And I think it's a way that uh, you can see the the value of the UN human rights system being brought home to a national level. Yes. And countries don't like... And this is the benefit... We're going to talk in a moment about the treaty bodies, which are, which are run by human rights experts whereas we're talking here about the political process and it was really interesting to hear Hilary Charlesworth when she spoke gave our annual lecture a few weeks ago which is on our YouTube channel and as well worth a look saying that countries don't like getting criticised at the council it's worse for them than getting criticised by actual human rights experts because the matter the the opinions of your peers matter Mm. and so uh, the, the council does have that ability to bring things home because once a country has made commitments to human rights if it has a vibrant civil society in its own country as australia now does that then there can be this sort of accountability on the ground at the national level in the in the aftermath of that sorry and just just on that topic of um a a vibrant civil society and how important that is civil society does play a really important role at the council Um, during the upr process civil society and, and and anyone really can can um, submit their own comments and reports on the human rights situation that's under consideration. Um, And there's also accredited um, groups, so that's groups that have special dispensation in effect, to make statements um, during the debate at the council as well. And so they will often really take 
countries to task about what's going on um, in those countries and and put them in a position where they do have to respond. Mm. Yeah. Mm. All right, so we want to move on then from the, the, the council to what are known as the treaty bodies. So, Tanya, do you want to just take us through uh, what the treaty bodies do and what treaties are? And the, just sure. A, just a broad overview. So what we've spoken about uh, so far is often referred to as charter-based human rights mechanisms and what we're going to talk about now is treaty-based mechanisms and treaty bodies. So in terms of the human rights treaties, we've mentioned the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which is the the foundational human rights document that, that was a General Assembly resolution. It was originally intended that the Universal Declaration would be trans well would would be reflected in a legally binding treaty a human rights treaty but the cold war intervened and uh, there was a really a schism between the soviet states and the united states about civil and political rights on the one hand and economic social and cultural rights on the other hand so uh, the u.s representative in in the debate uh, said that economic, social and cultural rights are, quote, camouflage for arguing in favour of a particular sort of economic and social organisation, i.e. socialism slash communism. So we got two treaties. We got an international covenant on civil and political rights and an international covenant on economic, social and cultural rights. And the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights has has always dominated in certain countries. Yeah, and again, just to bring the, the you know the international level back to the national level, and, and the and to, to kind of illustrate how international decisions on human rights really do impact on the ground. Mm. Uh, Australia doesn't have a Human Rights Act, but the ACT and Victoria do. And like a lot of other countries around the world, they really mirror the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. So the the cascading effect of that original decision to separate civil and political from Mm. economic, social and cultural has had long-term effects that actually do flow down to individual countries and and therefore the rights that are protected for actual people in countries. Yes, and and often civil and political rights are referred to as first-generation rights and economic, social and cultural rights as second-generation rights, though um, one does not, one set of rights does not predate the other and, in fact, human rights are all indivisible and interdependent. But back to the the core treaties, uh, another significant one that that actually predated the two covenants by... um, about a year is the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Racial Discrimination. That's an extremely important human rights treaty. It reflects um, the the um, post-Second World War concern about racial discrimination and also um, decolonisation. Yeah, and so we're getting in here to what you might say is the thematic treaties so you've got the main two treaties and then so race and what are the other major ones concerned with our other human rights treaties concern discrimination against women torture and um, other cruel and human or degrading treatment rights of the child uh, the protection of migrant workers the convention on the rights of people with disabilities which um, is a relatively new one concluded in, in 2006 
and uh, in the same year we got the International Convention on Enforced Disappearances. Now all of these core treaties have supervisory treaty bodies which, which supervise the implementation by state parties of their obligations under those treaties. So states need to report to the treaty bodies and um, they get back concluding observations which are essentially a report card on how they're, they're faring with respect to implementing their treaty obligations. Some of these treaties also have optional protocols that set up a mechanism whereby individuals can complain to the treaty bodies about alleged violations of obligations under those treaties. And the treaty body issues uh, what are called views, um, so, so findings, with respect to those allegations and, um, and often they'll find that, um, that a state party is in breach of its obligations under the treaty. Hmm. Um, some, of the, some of the optional protocols too are specifically aimed at tackling uh, c concerns around human rights. So, for example, the second optional protocol to the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights is concerned specifically with the abolition of the death penalty. Um, one of the optional protocols to the Convention on the Rights of the Child concerns specifically the involvement of children in armed conflicts. So we do have some optional protocols that seek to tackle a particular concern. So uh, these treaty bodies in contrast to the uh, Human Rights Council are uh, filled with experts who are nominated. So we, we've had some Australians over the years who are on, have been on the various bodies, but they're there in their professional capacity as experts rather than representing a particular country. Um, so uh, quickly, just a few other committees that of important bodies for human rights within the the uh, the UN system there's what's known as the third committee which was really the subcommittee that that looks after human rights issues for the general assembly uh, and then there's the office of the high commissioner for human rights and it plays a really interesting role uh, really as a, a secretariat so uh, Eleanor what are some of the things that that OCHA does Right, so the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights, um, as you say, really really is the, the secretariat body on human rights. Um, they coordinate the, the Human Rights Council, which meets three times a year um, in Geneva, and OHCHR is, is based in Geneva um, in a beautiful building overlooking the lake. Uh, <laughs> they obviously run a, a whole series of, of programs um, working with, with different state agencies um, to support the implementation of human rights in various countries. Um, and they have a think tank um, within the agency as well. Um, and a really interesting thing that they do is that they do coordinate the work of what we, we call um, special procedures. Now, the special procedures are a, a really interesting part of the human rights um, you know, landscape um, they're independent experts who are appointed uh, to unpaid roles to preserve their independence. Um, and these roles are, are either country or thematic mandates. Um, the thematic mandates can be anything from um, 
freedom of expression um, through to the right to development um, and there's a whole host of different thematic issues that they can address. Yeah, you know, we mentioned sexual orientation and gender identity which is one of the newer ones. Mm. Exactly, yeah. And what they do is they, they sort of have three functions. Um, they can do country visits where they go to a country to analyse progress made on that, that issue. So, for example, uh, in October last year, Michelle Forst, who's the special rapporteur on human rights defenders, did a visit to Australia and he'll be releasing his report, his final report next year. Um, they do thematic reports on particular issues and that's to try and advance the international standards um, on a particular issue. And they also do receive individual complaints, so complaints from individuals. Although unlike um, the treaty bodies that, um, that Tanya was explaining before, they don't issue views or findings. They more act as a liaison between the individual and, and the state to try and, and get progress on resolving that particular complaint um, and and that and so that that's their main function and they report back to the human rights council and and i think we were talking before about the normative effect of general assembly resolutions and i, I just wanted to comment on the normative effect of, of the work of special rapporteurs so the um, special rapporteur on violence against women its causes and consequences the, the first special rapporteur in that role um radhika kumaraswamy issued a really important report uh, that that spoke about uh, violence against women in the private sphere constituting a human rights violation and also spoke about a standard of due diligence being required by states to implement human rights obligations to women. And, and that was relatively new at the time. And now that due diligence standard has been taken up by treaty bodies, uh, the... the, the um, committee uh, that supervises the uh, Convention on the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women, but other treaty bodies too. And it's really entered into our understanding of human rights treaties. So you can see that the work of these special rapporteurs sometimes does uh, play a very important normative role. Yeah. So to sum up there, they play an interesting role because we talked about the political body that's the council, the experts who are the treaty bodies, and then you have these mandate holders, special rapporteurs, independent experts, a variety of names, uh, that are independent, they are experts, but they are commissioned by and report back to the political body that is the council, and then it's up to the council to decide what to do with the reports they get. All right, so I reckon that gives us a broad idea of how the human rights infrastructure works. So we're going to bring this to a close. Uh, in conclusion, you know, the UN's a pretty, uh, a pretty complex body. It has some, the Security Council, which is the lead on international peace and security, the General Assembly, which you know, is where the nations come together, and then and, and, and a whole bunch of other bodies. And then we see the you know, geopolitical interplay, and then we have this human rights you know, you, you know, reflected in the human rights infrastructure as this kind of tension between political and programmatic, which I think is really interesting. So we'll we'll leave it there on uh, on on the UN and human rights, and say so that we do want to come back in the new year to talk about some of the more contentious issues, which we've kind of alluded to at certain points today, but kind of also left uh, in a separate bucket to uh, unpack in a future for, uh, podcast or two. 
So we're going to move on now to human rights news. We'll just really quickly run through a few things that are happening at the moment. Uh, one is that there's a climate summit uh, that's been occurring in Paris. Uh, the French President Emmanuel Macron opened the summit uh, of more than 50 countries by stating that we are losing the battle on climate change. It was a bit of a fizzer, um, not a fizzer, there were some commitments made, but you know, again, nothing really concrete, nothing really major, uh, and things are in a bit of a holding pattern because of one country in particular who was, uh, didn't send its head of state over, the United States, uh, and they're pulling out of the treaty, well, they've, um, the uh, climate change treaty, uh, which will take a little bit longer. But what was really interesting was that the governor of California, Jerry Brown, was there, showing that the, the fracturing of you know, climate change action in the US, but also the potential always for action at a you know, sub-national level. So another issue in the, mo- in the news at the moment is... Uh, uh, the potential movement of some refugees from Manus Island to the United States. Tanya, do you want to tell us a bit about that one? So the New York Times has reported that more than 60 asylum seekers being held at Manus Island in Papua New Guinea have been called for additional meetings with American authorities to discuss potential resettlement in the US. Um, now, um, these... 60 asylum seekers are all from Pakistan, Afghanistan and Myanmar and uh, so it it appears that no one from that list has come from countries that are, are on Trump's travel ban list. So there's some uncertainty about how that's going to play out. Mm. There was an interesting uh, you know, report a little while back about a small group of uh, refugees from Cuba who arrived here and a question asked as to whether that was part of the deal between uh, Turnbull and Obama that wasn't quite a swap deal but uh, they committed to take some of our refugees we committed to take some uh, Latin American refugees as well uh, but this uh, 60 would be a small down payment on the uh, the over a thousand refugees that the US said it would take yes um, uh, in Egypt, a pop singer has been sent to prison uh, for two years for inciting debauchery because of a, uh, a, a music video clip. Um, so the singer, uh, who is a little-known 21-year-old singer called Shoma, uh, has now been fined and sent to jail uh, in what is you know, just a horrible reminder of the difficulty that women face in you know, many different countries around the world. Tanya? So The Guardian has, um, has reported that UK police have rescued nine suspected victims of slavery from British trawlers. Um, the men were reported to be from Ghana, India and Sri Lanka and were identified when one of the trawlers came into the Portsmouth Harbour last Thursday because a crew member had suffered a head injury. Uh, I wonder, Marius, whether you could um, share some of the the work that our members are doing on this issue. It's really interesting because modern slavery is just an issue that just keeps taking off and I, I you know I think part of it is because governments are on board with it but uh, it, it affects business hugely businesses are implicated often or concerned about effects of modern slavery and at the beginning of this year we were lucky enough for Professor Jean Lane to come to uh, the Monash Law Faculty and become part of the centre and he's a world-renowned expert on 
on slavery and uh, has been he has been instrumental really in developing the, the the law and norms in this area and he has been working on getting modern slavery acts there is a modern slavery act in the UK and getting modern slavery acts implemented in Australia but also in other countries throughout the world and it looks like Australia will have a modern slavery act quite soon yes all right, so that's a, just a really brief run through some of the things that are making the headlines uh, around the world at the moment on human rights. And so now it's time for my favourite segment where we finish with our human rights hero or villain of the week. Tanya, uh, who's your hero or villain? Well, my hero is Chrissy Foster and um, indeed her late husband, Anthony, who passed away earlier this year. Uh, it, it's quite timely uh, to mention the work of the Fosters because the Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse is going to be concluding its work this week. And the work of the Fosters has been really important in, in actually advocating for the Royal Commission and before it the Victorian Parliamentary Inquiry into Child Sexual Abuse. Chrissy Foster has been an amazing advocate for survivors. Uh, two of her three daughters were raped by a parish priest, Father Kevin O'Donnell, uh, who uh, had been offending for decades prior to raping her children and really should not have been out there. Um, in his ministry. Uh, so Chrissy uh, was on the ABC last night. Some of you might have seen the program Undeniable, which, uh, which was a reflection on the cover-up and the work of the Royal Commission. So um, Chrissy is really a, an amazing Victorian and should be recognised as such. Great. Eleanor? Well, I'm afraid to say I have a villain um, no, we like, we like it when you... We like it. Well, I've got more than one villain, oh, as it exciting. turns out. Um, it relates to the visit of Milo Yiannopoulos, but it would be too easy to make him our villain, um, oh, I'm afraid, although he's an obvious candidate. Um, he was invited by David Lionhelm to do a Q&A and speak um, at, in Parliament, or at Parliament, I should say, not in Parliament, um, mercifully. And so... I think the villain for me is both Mr Lionhelm but also those parliamentarians who attended and applauded. Um, while I think we all respect freedom of expression, um, we also appreciate that giving someone with those views the sort of platform that is speaking in Parliament House in Australia before parliamentarians who offer some support for his views is, is pretty odious um, and... Yeah, very on the nose. Is Lionhelm later appeared on Sky News and, and declared that, that Milo's concerns are, are very mainstream. <laughs> yeah. And uh, no one took him on about that. Mm. Yeah, well, uh, I would really recommend, if you're going to read one thing about his visit, Jeff Sparrow's article in The Guardian about it, which was published last week. If you just Google Jeff's name and Milo Yiannopoulos, you'll find it. It's a really fantastic you know, takedown of... Uh, of Milo Yiannopoulos and you know his many supporters in Australia, including people like Andrew Bolt, who opened his Adelaide show, and 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 Sparrow's commentary on Andrew Bolt's hypocrisy is uh, really something to read. Mm. I also have a villain. Uh, and mine is Roy Moore, Alabama Senate candidate for the Republican Party. Uh, he has been accused credibly by 
um, a number of women of sexual assault and sexual harassment, including by a woman who at the time was 14 years old. And it turns out he has a propensity or had a propensity for like, an interest in young girls to, to such an extent that subsequent reporting suggested that uh, he was either banned or at least discouraged uh, from attending the local mall where he uh, had a habit of striking up conversation with young girls. Uh, we're taping as as it's on, and it's fifty fifty at the moment. Although, and so, and you'll know the result by the time you listen to this. Although, I like the news on five thirty at the moment that uh, the Democrat uh, Roy Moore, uh, sorry, the Democrat Doug Jones is actually the favourite now, and would be the first uh, Democratic Party s- Senate candidate to win in the state since ninety uh, two. All right, uh, that's all we've got time for. Uh, thanks for listening, and if you enjoyed it, please be sure to rate the podcast as it helps others to find it, and also share it through your networks. Today's podcast was edited by Caitlin McInnes. <laughs> <laughs>